This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. This is the last, the last sermon in our series with Nehemiah. We, we've come through such a journey with him. It, it's almost hard to, to wrap up, uh, but we're going to cover a few chapters here to close out the book. Uh, we're not going to read through all the chapters. We are going to do some, some significant reading to, to finish out the story. Um, but I'm just excited to, to, to hear these lessons from the story and to, to grow from that experience. Uh, we're going to begin in, in chapter 9, verse 38. If you have a Bible, you want to open up with me. We invite you to do that. The words will be on the screen behind me. If you have a phone or a tablet, you want to use the YouVersion Bible app. Uh, you can find scripture and sermon notes for our sermon there. You just open up the app, search under events for Parkview Finley, and you'll find those there. Let's begin reading in verse 38. In view of all this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, our priests are fixing their seals to it. Well, that seems a bit sudden, doesn't it? In view of all of what? what where, have we, where have we come from? What, what is Nehemiah pointing us to remember that has, has brought the leaders of the people of Israel to, to write out a formal agreement and put their seals on it? Well, we've, we, we've been with Nehemiah in, in the Persian capital of Susa as he served the king and heard from the, the, those who were returning from Jerusalem about the state of, of their city, the walls torn down. Uh, we were with him when he, he pleaded with the king to send him back to, to care for the city, to restore this place that was uh, symbolic of, of the presence of God among his people, where the temple was, and in their eyes, the place where they would, would go to worship him, where his presence dwelt, the relationship uh, embodied in that temple for the people of Israel, a significant representation of God in their lives. We journeyed with him back to Jerusalem with the, the consent of the king, with provisions, uh, with an armed guard as he then met up with the remaining people of Israel and started to rebuild. And, and as they did, they met opposition. The, the people groups living around Jerusalem who did not want to see this, this city become fortified, become restored to its former glory and might, and they began actively working against the Israelites, threatening their very lives. The people of Israel stood against that threat, guarding one another while they worked, protecting one another, taking careful precautions that those people wouldn't hinder what God had put in their hearts to do. And they worked with all of their hearts. They dedicated themselves to the construction of this wall. And when it was completed, they celebrated together. They, they lifted their voices. They, they ate together. They shared with one another. And they, they called on Ezra to read to them from the scroll that was the word of God, the, the law that was handed to, to Moses, this, this extended reading for hours. They stood together in, in the square outside of the water gate. They, they stood and listened, and they were brought to tears by the reading of the word of God because it pointed out how far they had come, how far they had, they had strayed away from God's will, how, far, how much sin they had allowed to become a part of their lives. And they confess their sins openly before the Lord at a later time. Now, in view of all of that, we have the, the leaders of the Israelites making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, fixing their seals. And then we move forward to chapter 10, verse 28, as those leaders invited the people to agree to the commitment that was in writing, to this formal document. They wanted all of the people to verbally Take part in this agreement as well. Verse 28, the rest of the people 
priests, Levites, gatekeepers, musicians, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand. All these now join their fellow Israelites, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our Lord. We promise, these are the, the, the commitments they made, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, at the new moon feasts and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, to make atonement for Israel and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of God, of our God at set times each year, a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it's written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, to the first, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees and of our new wine and olive oil, and we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, olive oil to the storerooms, where the articles for the sanctuary and for ministering priests, the gatekeepers, the musicians, are also kept. We will not neglect the house of God. Now, that's a pretty extensive commitment to make. There's a lot involved here, and the people recognized their need to make this formal, to, to say it out loud, to have it written and stamped. When they heard the word of God read, when Ezra read from the scroll, scroll they, they realized that there were things missing from their lives. They were lacking the practices that were defined in Scripture. They, they recognized that not only were there things lacking, but they had also taken on some things. Living in and among different people groups. The, the cultures of those people were influencing, affecting, drawing them in. And they had, they had taken up practices, traditions, habits of the people around them. And they had added to their lives things that, that went against what the Word of God said. And, and they knew they needed to make a commitment to align their lives with God's Word to align their lives with God's will. And the community gathered to unite themselves in this commitment. Men, women, children, everyone who could understand came together and agreed. This oath, this promise. And they recognized the value of, of what it is, the significance of living in relationship with God, a relationship of promise. Now we've learned a lot about this kind of relationship through our studies uh, two years ago, we, we studied the life of Abraham. We learned about the covenant that God made with Abraham, calling him out of, away from his home to, to follow in faith, to go to the place where God would give to him as an inheritance 
and to his descendants that God would make as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the sea shore. This covenant promise that existed between Abraham and God, establishing their relationship. A covenant that God reestablished with his descendants that, again, God reestablished with Moses and the Israelites on their way from Egypt to the promised land, coming down on Mount Sinai to hand the law down to them. They knew what it was to live according to a promise. And here, they bound themselves to this commitment with an oath and a curse. A commitment to live according to the promises, knowing that if they broke that commitment, there would be consequences. And we know what that's like, to make a promise and know that there will be consequences if we break it. That's how most promises work. But what we see that played out in a marriage relationship. There are promises to be made and consequences if those promises are broken. When Becca and I got married, went down to Florida. We were married at her home church down in Port Charlotte. And we spent some time there leading up to, went to church uh, at her, at her uh, home church there, uh, planned out the whole deal, the reception, the rehearsal, all those things that go with the wedding. But the thing that stood out to me in that process as we were preparing to make those commitments was the, the, the blunt reality of the consequences. While, while I was there attending church, uh, one of the family friends that attended church with them was really close, that had known her since childhood, walked up to me and said this, if you hurt her, I will find you. I expect that kind of thing from her dad, but not from Joe Schmo that I don't know. As we went on, another man, who was a friend of the family, who had known her since childhood, came up to me and said, if you hurt her, I will hunt you down. After seven, eight different friends of the family approached me, I wasn't even scared anymore. It's like, there's a line. You, there won't be anything left. But there's a consequence for breaking those commitments. When, when you sign for a credit card, you're making a promise, knowing the, the, the benefit of keeping your promise and paying your balance every month. Yeah, that's good. Maybe you get rewards. But the consequence, if you miss that payment, even by a day, it comes. This is what the people of Israel recognize in their commitment to God. There's blessing. There's also a curse that goes with this promise that we're making. They dedicated themselves to faithful obedience. The same thing that we do in our relationship with God. Faithful obedience is a commitment to honor God with our lives. To live according to his word, according to his will. And we know there's a blessing that goes with that obedience. And also consequence when we are disobedient. Here's the, the example we have from people of Israel. In their commitment, first they committed to turn away from what was wrong. Those things that they had taken on, they shouldn't have been doing. No, we'll, we are putting those behind us. We're turning away from them, God, and we're committing a different way of life to you. First, that they would no longer allow their sons to marry the daughters from other people groups, that they would no longer accept those daughters to marry their sons. And the, the reason for this is throughout the Old Testament, God trying to protect his people from the influence of those people groups who worshipped other gods, who worshipped false deities, that they would be drawn by that relationship, by becoming one with another person, that that spouse would then be able to influence them so greatly that the Israelites would be drawn away from God and begin worshipping those false deities. The real examples, we have time and time again where that happened. God was trying to protect his people and keep them faithful. Second, 
They refuse to purchase anything from merchants on the Sabbath or any other holy days. Even if they come into Jerusalem with really great stuff at a great price, we're not going to do it. We won't buy it. Sabbath is holy. And then they would also observe the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, they were to let the ground rest, recover, before they started planting again in the eighth year. And they agreed to do that. They also, in combination with turning away from what was wrong, committed to do what was right. To give to God what belongs to him. And there, there are a lot of things they committed to. They committed to a tithe. They committed to a first fruit offering. They committed to a firstborn offering. And they committed to other offerings as an expression of love to God. Now, the tithe is 10% of, of income. That is standard Christian practice that we all understand. It, it is what describes our faithful obedience, that, that God calls for a tithe. And it demonstrates to us our, our, our ability to depend on him, that, that this, this resource of money isn't something that we put our trust in. It's something that we use as good stewards. But the God is the one that we trust. The firstborn offering is the uh, firstborn son of a family, the firstborn male of a herd, then belongs to God. And, and those animals are presented at the temple. Uh, the, the children are dedicated to service of the Lord, unless that family wants to redeem them, to pay a price, to have them come back and, and be a part of the family and work the family business. And then the redemption price is what the temple keeps instead of the firstborn. They committed to do that. The first fruit is, is a description of what a tithe should be, the, the very first and best of the produce of the field. And so along with the tithe, they would also make a selection of uh, the, the very best of, if they were a farmer, the very best of the produce of the field. The very first that came off, if they were gathering a whole section of land, then the very best of what was there, the first fruit. Uh, and, and the recognition here that they would not neglect the house of our God. All of these offerings were contributed in a way to facilitate worship and sacrifice, to care for the Levites and all the people who, who facilitated worship to make sure that they had an income as well. And the people committed to no longer neglect the house of God, that they would very specifically dedicate themselves to the care of that place. And they, as a people, committed themselves really to allow their relationship with God to be the deciding factor of their lives instead of allowing other relationships to influence them and draw them away from him. This wasn't a matter of fulfilling obligation, of, of meeting the letter of the law because they had to, but they were pointing themselves to an obedience that was all the way through an expression of love, an expression of their desire to belong in this covenant relationship, this relationship of promise with God, to, to live for him in everything, to honor him and glorify him instead of seeking their own glory or gain. One commentator recognize the value of identifying the difference between tithe and offering by saying that the Israelites couldn't express their love to God with an offering until they fulfilled the tithe, that their giving to God until they reached that, that mark of tithe was commanded and their expression of love should be over and above what was there to help them understand the sacrificial nature of expressing their love toward God. And we see the value of, of, of the commitment that was made to honor God in that relationship. Now, there's a section of scripture that then describes who 
lived within the city walls of Jerusalem. Now the nobles and officials each took a house, many of them along the walls of Jerusalem, and they were responsible for the integrity of the wall, for upkeep and rebuilding whenever something would happen. And then they selected from among the people uh, one out of every ten families to inhabit the city of Jerusalem. Now, earlier in our, in our series, we heard about all the people who returned from exile to Jerusalem, a list of names. Again, Nehemiah tells us who all the people are that are living in the city of Jerusalem. So we move through that material. I'll just summarize it for you because it's like a lot of names. And we'll move into chapter 12, beginning in verse 27. After they settled in their homes, then they came together to celebrate again and dedicate formally the completed wall to God. Here's what it says. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, the Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving, with the music of cymbals, harps, and lyres. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, they purified the people, the gates, and the wall. And then Nehemiah gathered together two choirs. I'm going to summarize a few verses here. Gathered together two choirs, instrumentation, a leader of each group, and they made a parade. He sent the choirs up on top of the wall, and they started together, and they each marched in different directions around the top of the wall around the city, praising God, worshiping him. Verse 43, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. Now, this was their formal ceremony of, of dedicating the wall to God. They had already celebrated the completed work a little while ago, and now they were, they were dedicating the wall to God. And in doing so, they made a statement in the world around them. The, the sound of their praise could be heard in, in the world around them. The, the sight of the, the, these choirs marching around the city walls could be seen. And the people around them recognized how God was at work among his people, what he had accomplished in two months, the rebuilding of this massive wall, how he was working through them, drawing them back. And they dedicated all of that work to the Lord. And they worshiped him and they sacrificed to him, dedicating their accomplishment. Now, that's, that's how we glorify God. We glorify God by committing our accomplishments to him. And we've seen that in the world today, Super Bowl champions, Olympians, people honoring God for the, the victory. This is for you, God. Celebrating God by pointing to heaven, bowing and praying, by acknowledging in, in speeches. I thank God for what he's made possible in my life today. We hear this time and time again, and we, we wonder about that, that statement. We think about the, the significance of what they're saying. We realize that so much of life points to us. We have promotions, personal accomplishments, awards, recognition, fame, influence, followers. It all points to me. It all points to us. And, and we focus so much in life on elevating self, on raising awareness, on, on drawing attention. But we're called in Scripture to use everything that we have, every part of our lives, to point to God. Well, that's easy when we're in the spotlight. When we have a moment of, of, of victory, say, this is all because of God. Have you ever thought about how you can use every day to point to God? When you get to work and you punch in the clock, that's for you, God. Go on your break. Everybody, it's just because of God that I'm able to do this today. Just want to let you know. How can we give more of ourselves 
to the recognition of God in the world around us. It begins by growing in our understanding of what obedience looks like, of faithfulness, of living in established rhythms and habits of life that keep us within the moral boundaries of God's will. As we live there, we discover more about our relationship with God. As we, as we remain faithful, as we strive, we learn that God's desire for our obedience is a blessing. It improves our lives. That God isn't, isn't wanting us to follow his, his will, to follow his laws, to follow his decrees because it's an oppressive weight of obligation. God wants us to live within the boundaries of his will because of the blessing that comes from that relationship, how it draws us closer to him, how it provides for us a life of peace. Not worried about consequences that are coming because we're outside of God's will, because we're disobedient, but knowing that in our obedience there's peace in our relationship with God, a peace that flows into our relationships with other people, a peace that sustains us through life. It, it, it's, a, it's a place where we can live in joy in our relationship with God, not in fear, worried about the punishment of God, but, but of joy, exploring what faithfulness looks like and seeing the, the depth and meaning of growing closer to God within the boundaries of his will. We discover beyond that obedience over and above that obedience is a dynamic life lived in relationship with God that grows as we commit more of ourselves to him, that deepens as we, we discover how we express love to him, surrendering what's, what we once thought was for us, surrendering the things that, that we held close to our hearts. We discover how to give those to God as a, an offering, an expression of our love over and above the obedience that, that keeps us safe. And we learn about what that expression looks like as we serve, as we find opportunities to give our time and energy for his kingdom, for, for, for the benefit of his church, for the sake of the community. As we reach out and draw people closer to the Lord, we, we discover what, what that expression looks like. But have you ever wondered what it would be like if you, if you were able to surrender to God as an expression of your love, the, the, the part of your life that you have spent the most time developing? Each of us is uniquely skilled, is trained, is an expert in some area. We spent, outside of the 13 years of education growing up, we then, we then spent time learning, practicing, developing a, a skill. Trade school, college, university, internship, residency. You chose, we chose a, a specific place to, to focus on in our lives, to to develop a skill, to practice it, and cultivate it so that we would become an expert. And we've used that significantly in our lives. We have used it for the greater good, for, to, to bless the community. We've used it as a, a resource to provide for our families, to create a place where we could, we could have a family, to provide for the future. What would happen if we would also use that unique skill and surrender it to God? I'm not saying quit your job. No, I'm saying outside of your, your, your nine to five, what, what would happen if that place where you're trained became a unique opportunity for you to do something significant for the kingdom of God, to develop a ministry that would bless the church in a way that has never been done before, that would provide an opportunity for the community to come to know Christ as their Lord and Savior because 
you tapped into this resource that has already been so much a part of your life. You finally surrendered it to God to be used for him and for his glory. Maybe you work in, in an industry that, that is all about mechanical things. You're an architect, an engineer. You can build things. You can weld things. You just know how things work. Maybe you focused on finance. Numbers and figures, they make sense to you. It all clicks and you're good at it. Maybe, maybe you work in sales. And you know marketing and advertising like nobody else does. You can draw people's attention to something in a way that's inspiring. Maybe you work with people. Healthcare, social work, counseling, education. And you, you have dedicated yourself to the needs of people physically, emotionally, relationally, intellectually, spiritually. What if you could take those resources, that, that wisdom, that experience, and allow it to be your expression of love to God? Use the most gifted part of your life to serve, to point to God. Surrender to him. We have such opportunities in front of us to invest for God's glory. Dedicate this life, this, this trade, this skill, this talent, and commit it to the Lord. To recognize how he has blessed you. To, to recognize the, the victories that have come. And, and truly to hand it over to the Lord. In the same way we see the people of Israel. Dedicating the work that God did through them to his glory. Praising him for all the people to see. Now we skip ahead in our story after, after this moment. We move into chapter 13 verse 1. We find that a little time has passed, but we'll discover that as we read through. It's a lengthy section, so follow along with me, if you will. On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people. And there it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Before this, Eliashib, the priest who had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God, he was closely associated with Tobiah. You remember his name early in the story. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed to the Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I wasn't in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil things Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms. And then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God, the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of new grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. 
They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God. And do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem and were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and I said to them, what is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the other language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God. God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. Now, we, we heard about the, the oath that was taken, the, the promise made to God with oaths and, and a curse. And when Nehemiah returned, back to Jerusalem to find the people no longer faithful to the com commitment that they made, he took it upon himself <laughs> to bring about the curse. And he went around hollering at people, threatening to arrest them, beating people, and pulling out their hair. This is the curse in, in real life of Nehemiah reminding people how far they had come from the promise that they just made. But they weren't faithful to the commitments that they made to God. And we learn from Nehemiah, from his leadership, the significance of what it is to honor God by fulfilling our commitments, especially our commitments that we make to him. When we commit ourselves to the Lord, when we dedicate ourselves to, to following his will and his way, a faithful obedience, and, and instead we allow sin, we tolerate, sinfulness, temptation. We allow that presence to remain in our lives. It, it, is, it is devastating to our relationship with God. It is destructive to that relationship. 
it, it creates in us an apathy toward God because of all of that that remains. It, it begins to, to work at us, stalling out, creating this, this separation. We, we begin to feel like there's something wrong. In our, we don't feel close to God anymore. And there's a decline morally, spiritually, that takes place affecting our conduct as we begin to, to take part in the sinfulness that we've allowed to remain close to us as we begin tempted away from God. There's a, a change that takes place in our belief system about God, our, our feelings toward him, and our theology begins to, to be twisted. There's, there's a, a degradation that takes place in our relationship with God, crumbling and breaking in our relationships with other people as, as we, we indulge in these things that are destructive to our relationships. And what we see from our example here is the, the recognition that commitment to God honors him and we're faithful to it. And, and the people of Israel had seen the, the consequences that came on them. They looked back, back to the past and, and recognized the reason they were, no, that were coming back to Jerusalem was because they had been disobedient. And God allowed them to be taken captive and taken to other places. And now, more than ever, they should have known the value of being faithful to God. And yet they needed this lesson from, from Nehemiah of what it is to be faithful, what it is to obey, and to honor God with that obedience. Now, the, the people of Israel had a, an incredible example from God and his faithfulness to them. We, we read last week about their praise to God. as they, they said, God, you keep all your promises. You are faithful to everything that you say. And the reason you are, what they said as they praised him, is because of your righteousness. That's what enables you to keep your word. Now, we turn back to the opening pages of Scripture, and what we read is that we are created in God's image. Mankind. God created male and female, and he made them in his own image. And in us is a reflection of God. God has placed in us some of his character. Now, not in the, in the perfect expression of that character that he has, but a, but a reflection of that character. And God has placed in us the capacity for righteousness. He, he has formed us to be able to follow his example, to reflect this, this character that he has. And that when we dedicate ourselves to God, when we allow him to work in our lives, we discover the potential that he's placed there. To be faithful, to be obedient, to, to commit and to be faithful to that commitment because of the righteousness that he's placed in our lives. And when we do that, we become a reflection of his image in the world around us. We begin to demonstrate to people the character, the quality, the love of God because of the way we're living our lives according to his example. That's not an easy thing to do. But God has made it possible for us. Knowing that it's going to require sacrifice knowing that we're going to have to, to recognize things in our lives that, that shouldn't be there and, and turn away from them. And, and many of those things, we're going to depend on God to help remove them and leave them in our past. They're things that, that, that we, we very much don't want to be a part of our lives, but they've remained. Maybe just the temptation has remained, but it's a constant threat. And you know that you can't overcome that on your own. You've tried and failed. And as much as you want to be free, you need God's hand in your life to free you from it. God is calling you to allow him to work and help you leave that behind. Maybe 
for you, you know the need to develop safeguards in your life, that this, this sin and temptation that's around you should be seen like a, a danger, like a cliff beside the road. And in order to be faithful to God, you recognize the need to build guardrails, safety nets, to keep you from falling into temptation, to keep you from falling into sin, because you know in those difficult moments of life, you aren't going to make a wise decision. When you're in the moment, that temptation has such power over you that you will fall. And so you step back and allow God to help you build the guardrails of life. You make decisions about how you will act, about the decisions you will make before you ever get in that situation. And then when you're there, when you, when you begin to recognize temptation, you can, you can use those guardrails. You can use those safety nets and know the decision that you need to make before you ever need to get there. Our commitment to God is clear. He desires for us to live in faithful obedience. He desires for us to learn more about his righteousness and be an expression of that in our lives. And he calls us to live according to the commitments that we make an example to the world around us. And he calls us to help one another in that process, like Nehemiah did with the people of Israel, to, to intervene in people's lives, say, I, I see this thing that shouldn't be there. I see this temptation constant, consistent. You, you, need, to, you need to remove that. You need to sacrifice and step away. I, I know that's a thing that, that you enjoy doing. No, you need to step back. You need to, you need to remove that temptation so that you can be faithful to God, so that you can grow in your relationship, so you can live your life as an expression of love to the Lord. That's what he's calling us to this morning. Now, you look in your bulletin, and you see, you see the points from the sermon, little blanks to fill in. That's good. I hope you did that today. You also will notice there's a big space at the bottom. Now, usually we leave that for you to take your own notes, draw pictures, you know, whatever you want to do. I want to ask you today to use that space. If you haven't already taken it up, doodling, to, to use that space in the same way the people of Israel express their commitments to God, that you would write down the, the things that you need to formally commit to the Lord. Maybe for you, you have, you have something that you need God to help you remove from your life, and you need to turn away from it completely. And that's the commitment you need to write down, because you know you need to sell. Maybe, maybe for you, there, there's a practice that you need to add to life, something that God describes in scripture that you haven't been doing that you know you need to do. And you need to make a commitment. I'm going, I'm going to faithfully do this. I'm not gonna forget. I'm not gonna get busy and set it aside. I'm going to do this. Write that out. Could be even as simple as, as recognizing your need to spend time with God every day, reading his word and praying. And you're gonna commit to a, a dedicated time of, of, of devotion with God. Whatever it is for you, you make that commitment. Maybe you, you felt convicted about about the talent, the skill that you have. And you know that you could be using it for the God's glory. You know that you could be using it for something greater than yourself. I want you to write that down. Make it tangible, make it real, make this a commitment to the Lord. Maybe you know that you need to be faithful. You need to keep your commitments. And you know that you've broken a few and you need to make those right. Maybe you know of a particular area of your life that, that you've tried to commit to God, but you have been unsuccessful. And this is the time to invite God into that process, to invite some other people into that process and make it formal and make it real and, and make the sacrifices necessary to finally leave it behind. Whatever your commitment is, 
I want to invite you to take some time, prayerfully consider, and write that down, if you will. This, this is a time of invitation that we have at the end of every sermon. And that's one aspect of the invitation, that you would commit to the Lord and follow that commitment, be faithful to that commitment. I also want to offer a time for you, if you need to accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, to confess Him as Lord, to repent of your sins, be baptized in His name, that you would take that opportunity today. If maybe you've been a Christian for a very long time and you've recognized a need for real change, maybe that's a decision you need to make publicly.